0: But last week, our study on the life of Jesus Christ came to the place of the wise men, as many of us know them, the magi from Babylon who rode into Jerusalem, we found out about a year and a half after Jesus was born, looking for the king of the Jews. They had seen what they describe as a star in the sky that was leading them towards the area of Jerusalem, And when they saw the star, they knew, because of prophecies that were centuries old, they knew that it hailed the birth of the Messiah, the King of the Jews. King Herod, who was the Roman official in charge of Israel, and current owner of the title King of the Jews, didn't take the news well. And he was concerned that the birth of this child would cause all the native Jewish population to rise up in rebellion, Rally around this figurehead, this child, this messiah, and rebel against Rome. so he is on a mission to stop any type of uprising by the local Jews, so he conspires to use the wise men to go and get information for him so that he can go and kill the baby the Messiah Jesus Christ. And so today we 're going to see some tragic and horrific circumstances of Herod 's attempt to stay in control, and we're going to see the miraculous. Hand of God at work, providing comfort in the midst of unbelievable chaos. Have you ever been in that place in life where it just seems like chaos? And I'm not talking about busyness. I'm talking about chaos where it seems like there is no plan. There is no guiding hand. You seem like you're almost cursed in what you do. There's just chaos. If you've ever been there, I want to encourage you this morning that God always... Always, always has a plan. And that's what we're going to see in today's study, even in the most horrific of circumstances. So we're going to pick up our study in Matthew chapter 2. We'll start in verse 7. It says, Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. So Herod, for the first time, calls the wise men, the Magi who've been riding around Jerusalem, saying, Where's the king of the Jews? And he says, when did, you, uh, when did you first see the star? Because he wants to do the math in his head. He wants to figure out if they saw the star a year ago, that means this kid should be about a year old right now. So this is why he's asking them. He's pretending he's, he's very interested in this prophecy. So he says, what time did the star appear? In verse 8, it says, and he sent them, the magi, to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child. You see, it's a young child, not a baby. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him too. He's obviously an imposter. He's doing a great act. He has no intention of worshiping the Messiah. He has every intention of killing him. Verse 9, it says, When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east. We found out last week, the more accurate translation is the star which they had seen when it rose went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. So the star, the glory of God, the shaken glory of God moves and then stops over where Jesus is in Bethlehem. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. They must have been incredibly surprised by where the star stopped because there in Jerusalem, the religious and cultural epicenter of the area, and the star says, no, not here in Bethlehem. And so they're full of rejoicing because they see the star again, and it stopped. It stopped, indicating this is the place where the Messiah has been born. They found it, and they're overjoyed when they have that realization. Verse 11, it says, and when they had come into the house, you'll notice again, they're not in the stable anymore. They've settled down to some degree in Bethlehem. They saw the young child and Mary, his mother, You might want to underline, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. One quick note, whenever Matthew mentions Mary in connection with her child, Christ is always given first place, always. This happens somewhere else in Matthew chapter two in two different places. So picture this in your mind. The Magi fell down, And worshiped him. This was not, oh, there's the Messiah. Top notch. Top notch. Excellent. This is no little golf clap. These are noble men. They are well dressed. They're educated. They're brilliant men. And they fall down face to the ground, not on the natural bamboo hardwood floors, but on the dirt, face to the ground, speaking out praise to Jesus. And somehow it's even more humbling because he's a toddler. He's around a year and a half. He's probably saying his, his first words. And even the idea of bowing down before a baby is incredibly humbling. But a toddler who might walk up and just start hitting you on the head while you're doing it is something completely different. But they do it face down. They have this immediate recognition, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to recognize this is the Messiah. And this is our first fill-in. Very simply, real worship is always costly. Real worship is always costly. It might cost you your so-called dignity. Worship might cost you financially as you learn to tithe and give. It might cost you your friends or, or even your family. It might cost you popularity or a promotion. But real worship is what happens when you discover something that is more meaningful and valuable than anything else. So valuable that you don't care what it costs you. Because you realize that whatever it costs, it pales in comparison to the value of the thing you're worshiping. And Jesus is worthy of our real worship. Whatever it costs us is really irrelevant. It really is. Because he's worth worshiping. And the idea of three kings probably originates from the fact that three gifts are mentioned here in Matthew. But we know that there were probably many more magi than just the three, and there were probably many more gifts given than just the three. But these three are mentioned specifically because they have a prophetic significance. Gold is the representation of royalty, and it represents Jesus as king. It represents the kingship of Jesus. Frankincense represented Jesus as priest, And frankincense was used extensively in the tabernacle and in both temples. It was baked into the showbread and used in various other rituals. And so it represents Jesus as priest. And then myrrh represented Jesus as a martyred prophet. A martyred prophet. And myrrh is a spice that is made from a specific tree. And I I was reading up about it. And uh, on that most reliable of sources, Wikipedia, I discovered That to get it, they actually have to go through the bark into the tree, and it's actually called bleeding the tree, is what they do. And they go and they get the sap out, and the sap that comes out is myrrh. It's a very, very precious liquid. And this spice appears two more times in the life story of Jesus. It appears when Jesus is offered a sponge soaked in myrrh and vinegar while he hangs on the cross. And then myrrh appears again in John 19, when Jesus's body is being prepared for burial and Nicodemus brings a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds worth to be used in wrapping the body of Jesus. It was a spice used in burial. It's a very odd gift to give a kid, you know, like somebody gives you this and says, Hey, it's never too early to plan ahead. You know, it's like showing up for a, for a baby shower with uh, a tombstone, you know, and a certificate so that you can get it engraved for free, and being like, you know, I just, I just didn't want you guys to have to think about this when the time comes. It would be like that. So it's a very, very odd sort of gift, but it has a prophetic significance. And together, these three gifts represent the three offices that Jesus Christ occupies, prophet, priest, and king. Going on in verse 12, it says, then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, They, the Magi, departed for their own country, Babylon, another way. This must have been interesting for them because, remember, their main skill is not astronomy or astrology. It's the interpretation of dreams. And they're probably used to interpreting uh, the subconscious that feeds into your dream state. And they're probably used to interpreting things from a psychological perspective. And here they have a visitation from God, probably the angel Gabriel, in a dream And so they must have woken up and been saying to each other, man, I had a dream last night. A dream. It was something they had never experienced before, but it's crystal clear. God says, go home another way. Don't go back to Herod. Verse 13, it says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. So in all likelihood, Mary and Joseph flee to Egypt that night. The Magi visit that night. Joseph has a dream, wakes up Mary, and they go you can write this down because here we see again that a spiritual mountaintop is often followed by a spiritual valley. They're on the high of the Magi coming from Babylon to worship their child as king of the Jews. There's nothing really to suggest that anything special has happened in the last year and a half since the night Jesus was born and the shepherds come and pay homage. It's been a pretty normal year and a half building a new life in Bethlehem. Then out of nowhere, the Magi arrived just to remind them, by the way, Your child is the son of God, the Messiah. It's this incredible experience, bringing lavish gifts all the way from Babylon for them. And that night being told that they need to flee for their lives. That is a high and a low in the same day of an intense nature. To really understand this, we've got to put ourselves in Mary and Joseph's shoes or sandals to be more accurate. So just realize they've spent the last year and a half settling down in Bethlehem. Uh, they've probably escaped the rumors temporarily about how Mary became pregnant. They've made new friends. They're, they're building a new life together. They've just had this miraculous and encouraging visit from the Magi. Things are finally looking up. God is with us. And then the dream. Leave, leave everything and flee to Egypt. How long are we going to be there? Till I tell you it's safe to come back. And that's it. That's it. No timeline. I'm sure... There were tears. I'm sure there was great fear. I'm sure there was a whole wave of emotion going all the way back to the birth of Jesus, of them both thinking, I, I, can't, I can't live like this. I can't have everything fall apart and be uprooted every year, every year and a half. I can't, I can't live like this. But the provision of God is amazing because they, they don't have any time to liquidate their assets. They don't have any time to sell Joseph's tools and of their furniture. They don't have any time. This is grab your donkey and whatever you can fit in a few bags and go. But what did they just receive in the last 24 hours that same day? Highly valuable items that are small in size. And so it's a pretty safe bet that they throw those into the bags and head to Egypt and the Magi's visit literally funds Jesus' family's flight to Egypt. That's how they do it. That's how they get to Egypt and start a new life. They didn't have any savings. And the Magi show up within that same 24 hours. In the midst of the chaos, God is still there because he handles the details. And here's what I know. I know that in the middle of that, I'm pretty sure Mary and Joseph weren't saying, isn't this fantastic God provided this to fund for us. I mean, the hand of the Lord, I mean, hallelujah. Let's just sing some songs together. They were freaked out, out of their minds. And I'm sure only later on did they look back and go, hey, did you ever realize that we wouldn't have had any money if the Magi hadn't visited that day? Can you imagine if they had come one day later, if they had had one hiccup on their journey? Just hours off would have changed everything. We would have been sleeping on the street. And then they look back and go, wow, God God was there right in the middle of that. God was there right in the middle of the chaos. Out of Egypt I called my son fulfilled, Hosea 11.1. We're going to come back and talk about that in a few minutes because it's important. But verse 16 says, Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. The word deceived actually means mocked or ridiculed. Herod was livid that he had been tricked because there's this awkward atmosphere arising in the court of the king when the magi don't show up. And you know, people are whispering, I think he just got played they're not coming back. I mean, they're not saying that with an earshot of Herod because he'd probably kill him. But Herod is just livid because nobody defies Herod. But these guys are going back to Babylon, to the Parthian Empire. He can't chase him and take out vengeance on him. He's been tricked, or so he thinks. He doesn't know that they've been told by God through a dream to go back another way. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem. And in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. And this is quite simply as horrific as it sounds. It's probably around 20 baby boys are killed that night. And this is such a contrast to the silent night Christmas cards that we send out during the season. This is violence. This is weeping. This is heartbreak. So Herod uses the information from the timeline the Magi give him about when the star first appears, and he probably builds in a little bit of margin. He just says, kill everyone, two and under. Just kill them. And this really, really happens. This is why the Magi shouldn't be in your Christmas scenes, though. So when you set it up this year, put them like four blocks away or something, so they're like on their way, but they're not there at the same time as the shepherds. So there's this massacre that goes on in Bethlehem, and it, it really is horrific. Verse 17, it says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Rama, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are, they, are, they are no more. And there's a lot of Old Testament connections here, and we we want to dig into this. But first, we really need to understand how biblical prophecy works in order to get this. So the first thing we need to understand is that the nation of Israel is made up of 12 tribes, and they're all descended from Jacob. Rachel was the favorite wife of Jacob, and you can read their story in the book of Genesis. She died giving birth to one of the tribes of Israel, Benjamin. She died while she was on her way to Bethlehem, and she's buried in Ramah, which is just on the outskirts of Bethlehem. So the verse that we just read is speaking about Jeremiah thirty-one fifteen, And Jeremiah 31, this is where it gets interesting, prophesies what happens in Jeremiah 40. Jeremiah 31 is not speaking about Jesus. It's speaking about what happens in Jeremiah 40. The Babylonians storm into Israel, kill a bunch of people, and take the people of Judah away in captivity to Babylon. So you have the prophecy in Jeremiah 31, the fulfillment in Jeremiah 40, done and done. So when we see Rachel prophetically weeping for her children in Jeremiah 31, it's a poetic reference. It's allegorical. It's figurative. We know that because Rachel died hundreds of years earlier. That's the only way that you can read this. So it's poetic to say that she's weeping over Israel, the children of Israel who are dying or being taken away in slavery. So why is Matthew, who's a competent Levite, who knows the scriptures, saying this Jeremiah 31 prophecy is fulfilled right here in my book, chapter 2? What's going on? Well, when we talk about prophecy, most of us are used to the idea of prediction and fulfillment. This is going to happen. It happens, done and done. And that's sort of the Greek Gentile model of prophecy. In the, in the Hebrew full view of prophecy, they have prediction, they have fulfillment, and then they have pattern. And they believe that pattern is also prophetic. And this is how they view prophecy in its entirety. For, for example, the Israelites wander in the desert for 40 years in the wilderness. 40 years. Jesus will fast in the wilderness for 40 days. Adam will choose his will over the father's at a tree in Eden. Jesus will choose the father's will over his own at the tree of Calvary. As we're about to read, the Israelites spent their time in Egypt and Jesus will be taken to Egypt as a child. All of these things are examples of prophetic pattern in scripture. And most of them concern Jesus the Messiah what Matthew was saying is he's saying that Jeremiah 40's fulfillment of Jeremiah 31 15 600 years earlier was a prophetic pattern of what Herod would do in the town of Bethlehem. So we have prophecy in Jeremiah 31 15 fulfillment in Jeremiah 40 and then pattern in Matthew chapter 2 16. That's how it works. That's the sort of full view of prophecy. And I say all this because the prophecy that's mentioned in Hosea in verse 15 of Matthew 2 when it says, out of Egypt will come my son, is the same kind of idea. If you go back and read that Hosea prophecy in context, there's no way you can make it about Jesus. There's no way. You can't do that. It would be a bad Bible study if you did. It's talking about the nation of Israel as a figurative son of God. If you read the whole of that Hosea prophecy, the verses before and afterwards, it's dead clear. It cannot be about Jesus. It's a prophetic pattern is what it is. It was fulfilled at another time, and then Jesus was the pattern of that. But there's some other incredible prophetic patterns going on here as well. When the Israelites were in Egypt, Pharaoh ordered the slaughter of all of the Hebrew infants. The one who spared and who escapes is Moses. And Moses is a savior to the people of Israel who was sent by God. So in scripture, Egypt always represents, as well as being literal, it always represents the world. And when we say the world, we're talking about the part of the world, the people of the world, the nations of the world who do not belong to God, who do not follow God, who do not pursue him, who do not worship him. And Egypt always represents the world. So Moses is tasked with leading God's people out of Egypt out of the world and Jesus comes into the world into Egypt to free us from Egypt to free us from the world. In the Old Testament the the world has the power to make the holy unclean. In the New Testament Jesus says I've overcome the world and he now has the power to make the world clean and free them from sin. In the Old Testament the Israelites are led into Egypt, this is a cool one, by a man named Joseph who hears from God in dreams. Jesus is led into Egypt by a man named Joseph who hears from God in dreams. Matthew wants his Jewish readers to understand that just as Moses and Egypt is a prophetic picture of the Messiah who's going to come and rescue his people from the world, Jesus is the fulfillment of all that. He's the fulfillment of all that. And salvation is at hand through Jesus. So verse 19, it says, Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. When Herod, Herod the Great, who ordered the massacre of the innocents, when he died, his territory was divided between four of his sons. One of his sons is Archelaus. Archelaus is just as much a psycho and a tyrant as his dad was. So Joseph is thinking, this isn't really an upgrade to come back to a new flavor of crazy criminal. Uh, I don't feel so good about this. So God says, okay, go somewhere else. It says, And being warned by God in a dream, he, Joseph, turned aside into the region of Galilee. Galilee was governed by Herod Antipas, one of Herod's other sons, who's clearly not as much of a threat and a danger As Archelaus was, because Galilee is constantly made out by Matthew to be sort of a safe zone in the life of Jesus. It's never risky when he's going to Galilee. That's a safe, stable area for Jesus to be in. But it's also worth noting that as they make this journey, Mary and Joseph would be going right past the area and the town where Mary was first visited by the angel Gabriel and was made pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit with Jesus. And I can't imagine what the emotions would have been like for them going past there. I mean, I'm sure they said, "Can you, could you ever imagine what our life would be like?" But I'm sure there was not just this serene sense of peace. I'm sure there was also the sense of where's this all going. I mean, they they don't know if this is going to be like an annual occurrence, like an angel's going to show up and say, "Someone new's coming to kill Jesus. Go to Syria." They don't know if this is going to happen. They don't have that information. There's just this crazy instability. And whenever God shows up, it's to uproot them and send them somewhere else. So their life is marked by the supernatural, but it's also marked by great upheaval and great, great difficulty. It's what defines their life during this period. Verse 23 says, And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. So they settle in this area in Nazareth in Galilee. But here's what's interesting if you look in your Bible, if you do a search on BibleGateway.com or something for that prophecy, he shall be called a Nazarene, you won't find it anywhere. So I think what we need to explain why and understand. uh, We know that like Bethlehem, Nazareth is another very nondescript town, nothing special about it. In fact, The word Nazareth literally means sprout town or bean town. It is a hick town, is what it is. It's a hick town. It's not a high place of education and philosophy. It's a hick town. They're Jewish rednecks, if there is such a thing. So to be called a Nazarene was actually an insult. It basically meant you're ignorant. You have no idea what you're talking about. Because the view is everyone in Nazareth doesn't know anything except like growing plants and fishing. They know nothing about the world. To be called a Nazarene meant you were ignorant. It was an insult. That's why later on when Jesus begins his ministry, Philip goes and grabs Nathaniel and says excitedly, you've got to come meet Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like that's his response. That's the way people viewed Nazareth at that time. But the word Nazareth actually has its origins in the Hebrew word Natser which means branch. And this is kind of a play on words when Matthew says, the prophecy says he will be a Nazarene. The play is on the word branch there, which is the root of the word Nazareth. And he's most likely referring to Isaiah 11.1. 1. Isaiah 11.1 1 says, speaking of the Messiah, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, who was King David's dad, and a branch, it's that word again, Natser, shall grow out of his roots and that 's what it 's talking about here in this prophecy it 's referring to isaiah eleven one and a little bit is just lost in translation. But what we can know from where Jesus grows up in Nazareth is that Jesus can identify with the most common of us. Jesus can identify with those of us who feel like the die was cast, not in our favor we were born disadvantaged in some way, we were born into hard circumstances. Jesus comes from a place where Most people who tried to get out of there would never mention that they came from Nazareth. They'd just pretend that they came from somewhere else. But this is where Jesus grows up, a common, everyday guy. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see that essentially the next 28 years of Jesus' life goes by with nothing to indicate that he's supernaturally God, outside of one documented account in the temple, which we're going to study next week. His life is just normal pretty much till the age of 30. So normal that later on we'll see his own siblings don't buy it when he says he's the Messiah. They're like, "Um, looking at the last 28 years, no, I'm not buying it. He's that ordinary. And this is one of the last supernatural events we have is the Magi and the flight to Egypt and the coming back under the guiding of the Lord to settle in Nazareth. And this is a dark, dark story. This isn't really a story like, man, I want to be encouraged. I'll, I think I'll pop in that sermon on the slaughter of the infants in Bethlehem. just to lift my spirits. But this was one of those moments, as we've been saying for the past several weeks, when the curtain gets pulled back on the supernatural world, on the spiritual world. And we're reminded that there is a war going on between the forces of Satan and the forces of God. There's a war going on, and we get to see the brutality of that war up close and personal here. When you and I decide to follow Jesus, we switch sides. If we're not following Christ, we're we're lined up with Satan, whether we like it, whether we realize it, we just are, is what scripture teaches, unless we're intentionally following Christ. When we switch sides, Satan doesn't take that lying down. And he goes to work to do everything possible to discourage us, to make us lose hope, to make us lose faith. And I always say, one of the things we always need to be aware of is once we belong to Jesus, we are his. Satan's not trying to turn us into Satanists once we belong to Jesus. What he wants is he wants for us to be unaffected. He wants us to be terrible witnesses for Jesus. Because Satan says, okay, you belong to Jesus. But what if I can make your life and your attitude and your circumstances such that when anybody finds out you're a Christian, they would all say, there's no way I want to be a Christian. That guy's miserable. That woman's always complaining. I, I don't get the appeal of it. This is what Satan goes to as he tries to discredit our witness. Matthew told us that in Jeremiah thirty-one fifteen. Uh, There's a prophecy that was fulfilled through pattern that terrible night in Bethlehem. Again, it says a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they they are no more. Another good thing to know about scripture is scripture is always intentional when it mentions that. That's one part of a prophecy. And it's never an accident when Scripture mentions only one part of prophecy. What it generally is saying is it's saying, listen, this part of the prophecy was fulfilled at this place this time. Which means there's still more to come. One of the most fascinating examples of that is Psalm 22, which is quoted by Jesus on the cross. I encourage you, go read Psalm 22. Find the verse that Jesus quotes on the cross, and then read what's to come after that, which did happen afterwards it's incredibly moving incredibly moving so let's find out what happens after Jeremiah 31:15 next verse says this it says refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for your work shall be rewarded says the Lord and they shall come back from the land of the enemy there's hope in your future says the Lord that your children shall come back to their own border And it is true, it is 100% true that following Jesus will cause you to encounter difficulty. At times it will cause you to feel isolated. At times it will carry a high cost. And for believers in other parts of the world, it costs them even their lives sometimes. It's going on right now, all over the world. Christians are the most persecuted group of any type in the world today. But scripture says, refrain your voice from weeping because the blessings far outweigh the difficulties. Whenever Jesus says the word assuredly when he speaks, this is Jesus saying, what I'm about to tell you, take it to the bank. You can build your life on this. You can bet your life on this. He's going out of his way to say, assuredly, assuredly. And this is what he says in Mark ten twenty nine. Jesus says, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus is saying some very radical things here. He's saying, listen, whatever you think you're giving up, In this life, you're going to be blessed with something even better in this life. In this life. It's a radical, radical claim. In this life. Because everybody sort of buys the eternity thing. Like heaven's going to be better. But it's so easy to buy into the attitude of, you know what? Life down here is going to kind of suck. I can deal with that. Heaven's coming. Awesome. Jesus says, "Listen, listen, I'm telling you. Nobody who gives things up who makes sacrifices for me and for the gospel. Nobody will go without being rewarded a hundredfold in this life. In this life. That's what it says right there. And So how does this play out? Because we're all thinking like, well, believers that are being persecuted all over the world are, are being persecuted. They're not like having Mercedes like, delivered to their doorsteps and getting this hundredfold reward. So what are you talking about? I think what Jesus is saying is he's saying, listen. The friends that you, quote unquote, give up to follow me are nothing compared to the friends that I'm going to give you in this life who know me and love me. I'm going to give you friends that would die for you. There's not going to be any comparison. People in this life work and strive and try to accumulate money and wealth for one reason, they are betting their lives that it will make them happy. That's really what it all comes down to. They're betting their lives it will make them happy. If they can feel powerful, if they can have what they want, if they can have people respect them, that will make them happy. That's the wager they're making. Jesus says, I'll give you all that. I'll give you all that in this life. And we know that there are people who are martyred for Jesus Christ. But if you read the story of people who are martyred, there are stories of supernatural strength given by God that where persecution and difficulty increases, grace increases all the more. All the more. And that's really what the Christian walk is about. We've talked about this before. The greatest gift that God can give us is more of himself. There's nothing greater. And when you're in a season in life where life is difficult, but you are so aware that God is closer to you than he's ever been before, If you've ever been there, you know you wouldn't trade that for the world. You wouldn't trade it for the world. Jesus says, listen, I'm going to bless you in this life. It's going to be hard for a little while, but there are tangible, literal blessings coming your way in this life in response to the sacrifices you've made for me. He's saying whatever you're giving up is really just an illusion an illusion that you're giving anything up you're gaining everything you're gaining me you're gaining my kingdom you're gaining eternity with me you're not giving up anything this isn't tit for tat this isn't an even equation here you're not giving up anything if we'll just stay the course and follow jesus jesus himself says that there's blessings coming that you can't even wrap your head around as Rachel was dying in childbirth on her way to Bethlehem, she gave birth to Benjamin with one of her last breaths. She names her child Ben-Oni. Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. Jacob hears about it and renames him Ben-Jemin, which means son of my right hand. And Jacob does this because Jacob understands this story is not Over yet. Jacob was born in tragedy. He was born into loss. He was born into heartbreak. But that doesn't mean that's how the story plays out. And so Jacob says, No, he's going to be the son of my right hand. That's who Benjamin is going to be. And that's what Jesus loves to do in our lives. He loves to come in and say, Listen, I know that you have this and this. I know that you're starting here. I know that you came from here. I know that the equation says you can't end up somewhere good. But listen, I'll give you a new name. I'll change your course. I'll change your path. The story is not done yet. Hasn't even begun to play out. So all we have to do is determine that Jesus is gonna be the one who writes the story of our lives, Jesus, not us, to trust him and follow him. And Jesus says, listen, as you trust me and follow me and learn to obey me and stay faithful to me, I'm going to write a story for your life that you will not believe. You will not believe. In fact, you will look back at your moments of greatest chaos and you'll suddenly realize I was there right in the middle of it, handling the details because that's what Jesus does. Would you bow your head and and, and close your eyes? I want us to very simply just pray a prayer together. I want to ask that you just speak this out, just repeat after me as we pray this. I want us to pray this together. Let's just pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for the future you have for me. I want you to write the story of my life. Come and be the king of my life. I trust you with my life. And I love you.